the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 322 for Monday, March 28th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you ask the questions, you send in the tips, we try to provide answers, and in general, try to increase your knowledge of all things Mac and Apple related. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, where spring has sprung, I think, because some of the flowers in my yard are uh, peeking, peeking out from under whatever. John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut, and then back Back in Durham, I'm Pilot Pete. I'm here with Dave and John. Hi, John. Good to be here, guys. It's good to have you here, man. Uh, I've missed having you. It's nice being had. Yeah. uh, I'll tell you what, though. (laughs) It ain't spring here. It's still in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, it's cold. Which, relatively speaking, I guess, is spring. And yesterday was windy. Oh, brutal. Uh, All right, let's dive right in. So we got an email from Scott. We were talking about uh, uh, security and and fire sheep and all of that stuff. And uh, and Scott says uh, Facebook, he wants to remind everyone, and it is a good reminder, public service announcement. Facebook has rolled out the ability to connect using uh, SSL in in layman's terms. That means to connect securely. Uh, And those who use Facebook on open Wi-Fi networks should definitely uh, enable this option. But uh, but even if you don't, it certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, to ensure that all your communications with Facebook are secure. And the way to do this is to log into Facebook with your web browser. Go to uh, the account tab, which is over on the right from that uh, menu that drops down. Choose account settings. And then in there, account security is a section. And when you open that up, there is a checkbox to enable what they call secure browsing. That will then force every connection you have to Facebook to happen over uh a secure link and instead of seeing HTTP in the uh, status bar of your browser, you will see HTTPS. And uh, I did this this morning. My account was not set that way. It is now. Uh, and it, and then I immediately went, I did that on my Mac and then I immediately went to my iPad and pulled up Facebook on, on the web and it automatically jumped to a secure connection. So I, I ensured uh, or, or confirmed rather that the settings stuck across browser sessions and, and all of that good stuff. So definitely, definitely a good idea. I'm doing it now. Good. Done. Excellent. Now I was already set up for this, Dave. Okay. Had and you it, done well, it manually? Well, well, yeah, I had to, because I, I believe by default, this is not set. It is not. So we thank That's Scott right. for alerting us to this because there, there are a couple of, well, there's a reason you want to do this because I, I think I mentioned in a prior show that when I was traveling, I was at the uh, local airport and ran Fire Sheep, and right. I was able to log into someone's Facebook account. Yeah, that's bad. Oh, didn't you and, say it and basically their see again? their wall? Um, sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. In this case, it did not, Pete. Oh yeah. wow! So that was a shocker. I I saw this person's wall. I saw their friends. I as if I logged in as them because I guess what happened is Fire Sheep grabs a cookie that is normally not sent in a secure manner. Now, the other thing I noticed, which is very interesting uh, to add on to what Scott said, is in this section, there is also another thing that you probably want to check. In the same section, 
guys, is a thing saying when a new computer or mobile device logs into this account, send an email. Yeah, I I did not turn that on. Uh, I was afraid that it was going to start, you know, emailing me if I logged in from, you know, on my iPad on a different IP address or whatever. And that might start getting annoying. But uh, but but, you know, good point. I mean, if you you know, if you're someone who likes uh, security notifications from things like. Uh, what's that program you use that tells you anytime that uh, little snitch, right? So it's, it, it's the same, same thing to me as little snitch. It's like, all right, well, maybe we're turning on and then it's turn it off. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. But I have noticed I that. that some sites that I visit, especially when I clear cookies. So I think at least in some respect, cookies store this info is if I clear cookies and then I try to log into certain sites, especially banking and stuff, they'll say, up, oh, I, I don't know who you are. Right. So, so why don't you give me your password again? What's your grandmother's sister's maiden name? (laughs) Well, well, but I've noticed this. A lot of sites, I think they're tightening up the security. So, uh, I checked this one because I'd like to know. Uh, Yes, uh, to your point, Dave, it could be overwhelming. Right. But I think once all of your devices are registered, whether they be your your MacBook or your Mac or your iPhone or your iPad or whatever, then you won't get these annoying things. But it, it. uh, I'll see how annoying it is. Yeah. But I, but I noticed that was another setting, which uh, so to their credit, you know, Facebook isn't known for their security, but but that's another setting that I noticed, which uh, sounds like a good one. Well, while we're on the subject, uh, if you are a Twitter user, you can do the the very same thing. You can force Twitter to use secure connections by going uh, logging into Twitter. Then when you're logged in, you click on your name and choose settings. And then on the first tab, which is labeled account all the way at the bottom is a checkbox for HTTPS only. And uh, as I said, it does exactly the same thing and it forces all your connections to Twitter, be they from the web or using your Twitter clients, uh, you know, be it on your iPhone or your Mac or, or, you know, if you're using Tweety or or, or whatever, I guess Tweety doesn't exist anymore, but you know, the the Twitter official client or Twitterlater or, you know, Twitterific or any of those, it will force that same type of connection. So, yeah, because the client that I use, Yoru Fook, uh, I got to be careful. I want to keep our <laughs> podcast clean, but it has a setting, actually, which I had set from the beginning, which you say make all my connections SSL. Right. So whatever client you're using, if there's an option to do it, I, I can't see how it could hurt to do that. I mean, it may slow things down slightly, bit, Yeah, but n- nothing that I think anybody using a modern device w- would notice. That's so, right. That's right. All right. Uh, You know what? Let's talk about our first sponsor for this show, John, which is Audio Engine at AudioEngineUSA.com. And I always like to talk about their speakers because I use them and love them. Uh, The Audio Engine 2s are the ones I want to talk about today. Now, these are what would be considered their desktop speakers. They are. It is two separate enclosures, each with two speakers inside a tweeter and a subwoofer, if you will. Uh, the, uh, the speakers themselves are, let's see, uh, uh, six inches high and four inches wide, about five inches deep. So nice little cubes, if you will, not quite cubes, of course, but, but close, uh, sitting on your desk. One of them has power in it, uh, that feeds the other. So you just send a regular signal from your Mac or really any audio source. You could, you could run these from your, your iPod or iPhone or um, if you have a, an airport express, of course, you could plug uh, the audio output of that into these. 
And then uh, and then one of the speakers, the the left one has the amplifier in it that you plug into the wall and it drives both of the speakers. And these things sound fantastic. They really do fill a room uh, far more than I would have expected a, uh, a small speaker like this to do. They are. Uh, I've said many times that uh, the audio engine speakers are engineered for to make MP3s sound better. Uh, they are. But uh, it's important to note that they actually sound great with uncompressed music, too. They, there's nothing wacky about their EQ that would make anything sound worse. It's just they they pull out some of the some of the things that might get uh get lost in an mp3 conversion but they but they definitely sound great with uncompressed music and and really sound great with just about anything uh i i've i've been very happy with the ones i have and we're happy to have them as a sponsor it's audioengineusa.com these speakers are 199 a pair uh you can get them in black or white but if you use the coupon code MGGTEN, you can get 10% off. So uh, so that drops about 20 bucks off the price. You get a 30-day free trial or free audition. And uh, if you don't like it, you can send them back and get your money back. And again, all this is AudioEngineUSA.com. I really, if, if you're in the market for some speakers, go ahead and check these guys out. The, uh, the They've been making these things for pretty much as long as we've been doing this podcast. Uh, I think they're maybe, maybe about a year longer and, and they really, it, it's just fantastic stuff. So uh, on the subject of music, we were talking about cleaning CDs and, uh, and how to do it. And we got this audio comment from Kirshen. Hello, John, Dave and pilot Pete Kirshen from freerangecoder.com with a product I saw in a big box electronics store. Uh, it's about Mac Geek Gap number 319 about scratch DVDs and CDs. And this is a product for removing scratches. It's called the Skip Doctor by Digital Innovations. And it's available at skipdr.com. That's S-K-I-P-D-R.com. And it cleans radially from the center to the edge rather than around the um, circumference. It's about $40 and it's available online as well. And I hope this will help you maintain the disc surface in a scratch-free state. See you all in the bitstream. Bye. Thanks, Christian. And uh, I actually did a quick little search and found them for $29.98 US at Amazon. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Thanks. That's, that's, that's good stuff. That's, uh, my, my DVD player is picky. So I, I, may, I might pick one of these up. Anything to add, John, or, or, or should we keep moving on? Because I'm really excited about this next one. Oh, you are. Go. I am. I am. So uh, we've talked a couple of times about how, in fact, we talked in 319 about how apps can sometimes keep a disk from being ejected. And sometimes the OS will tell you what app it is, but sometimes it won't. And we talked about a very geeky way of going to the terminal and figuring out what this is. Well, Someone has gone and written a little utility that does all this in the GUI, and it actually works really, really well. The utility is called What's Keeping Me, and it's from Hamsoft Engineering, and it does exactly uh, what you would want it to do. It, it lists all your drives. You click on the drive, and then it shows you all the files that are open and what applications uh, are, are responsible for having those files open on any given drive. And you can obviously then go and quit the apps and uh, and then presumably eject the drive. So really, really handy thing should be should probably have waited for cool stuff found. But uh, 
but I just couldn't wait because it's so cool. So, uh, so it's like uber cool stuff found such a simple utility, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, in a meta sense. Right. So we gotta, we gotta do it that way. So yeah, good stuff. Have you, did you try it, John or no? Not yet. That's the right answer. That's right. Because, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's the, it's the kind of thing you want. And, you know, I know how to use LSOF from the terminal, but it's, you know, this yeah. is better. No, I, I, I rarely have the problem where I don't know what is preventing me from, right. you know, ejecting a drive or something. I did have another problem, Dave. Maybe we can talk about it a little later. I do have a, a mini tale of woe with my brand spanking new iPhone. Uh-oh. Um, but I solved it, and and it was because I listened to the Mac Geek app, or listened to you on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so maybe a little later we can talk about that because it really kind of took me aback. I, I suspect it was due to an iTunes go update. T- tell, that, tell your tale of woe. All right, I'm going to tell my tale of woe. Sure. So I plugged in my iPhone. So typically I plug my iPhone in when the battery gets down to you know a pretty low level. I, I don't sync it like crazy because I, I don't think I need to. I, sure. I just plug it into my MacBook pro when the battery gets down to single digit percentage because i want to pump up the battery and get it up to full again of course when you do that it'll do a number of things it'll do a backup it'll sync and and all that fun stuff if you have it set to do that automatically i should point out yes right yes in itunes there is a checkbox saying yes when when i see the device so today dave and it just happened today the first time i saw this stop right there because the checkbox the checkbox is sort of a misnomer the checkbox says uh launch iTunes when this device is connected. Uh, right. If you, but, but really what it, what it means is launch iTunes and then perform a full backup and sync of this device as mm-hmm. though you press the sync button, right? If you uncheck that box, not only will it not launch iTunes, but even if iTunes is already launched, it won't force a sync. And that can be really handy for a lot of different things. A, if you just want to use your computer to charge your device without forcing it to go through a backup ah, and a sync, right. just uncheck that box. The other thing that's handy about it is that setting is stored based on my experience. I believe that setting is stored on the device, not on your computer. Hmm. Because if I take my iPhone where I have unchecked that box and plug it into another computer, it does not launch iTunes. It doesn't try to sync and overwrite and warn me that it's going to blow everything away. It just happily lets me plug it in and it just starts charging. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So nice. go ahead. So here's what happened today. So I plugged in my iPhone. Mm-hmm. iTunes starts, you know, bouncing the icon. And then I got the error. iTunes was unable to load data class information from sync services. Reconnect or try later. Bad oh, boy. Oh man. Bad. Try, try later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did. And I yeah, got the same you know error. That's going to make it yeah. better. <laughs> so I did a little Google foo and messages. I know it. You know, I tried to reset my, uh, my mobile <laughs> me, which uh, some parts of it still deal, deal with sync services. Right. But then as I did the Google foo, I came across what I believe you had found Dave in, in a, a couple of shows ago. And this fixed the problem because it would not work. I mean, the, the, the progress bars were there, but, but I kept getting this stupid error. And, and to me, that was bad because I would like whatever's on my phone to get synced to iTunes. Sure. So here's what I did is I, I, uh, we found this article and, and it gets kind of geeky because you got to dig into the depths of the system to kind of fix things. And this is what I had to do, Dave. And uh, the article is iTunes, how to remove and reinstall the Apple mobile device service on Mac OS X. And that really worked for you. 
It did. It no did. Now it requires kidding. you. Now the, the thing is it requires you. And I, I suspect the part of this. So I think it was part that I did. And there was a recent update to iTunes, but I think the part of this that worked is that there was a package file. I believe it was. A, well, well, it mentions a couple of things that you should get rid of. One is a kernel extension and the other is a package file. And uh, but one of them is funny because it said, yes. So it was Apple mobile device support PKG. And it said, oh, by the way, this file may not be present in Mac OS 10, uh, 10.6 and later, but it was there. So I suspect that I had some cruft left over. But yeah, so I went through the and of course, we'll link to the article, but I went through all the steps that they describe in detail Got rid of the kernel extension, got rid of a receipt for a package, reinstalled iTunes, and the problem went away. So, but That's it's the first amazing. time I've That's ever cool. had, uh, but it's the first time I've ever had any sort of issue syncing any device with iTunes. Uh, yeah. But this article, although it, it's kind of scary because you got to go into your extensions folder and, and probably even scarier, your receipts folder to get rid of stuff. But it worked great. So initially I panicked, but then I remember back in, in my mind. Show 319. You, Dave, That's right. Yep. Yes. That you said, oh, by the way, this is uh, something you may want to try. And, and it worked great. So wow. now my, my, my phone is happy. And the other thing is when I looked at some of the recommendations were, well, look in your in the iTunes preferences under device and backups, because that was the other thing I was complaining about. It's like, well, I can't make a backup. Huh. And, you know, I went to that section of iTunes and there was no backup for my device either. So initially what I tried to do was, was whack the backups, which is buried somewhere, but I won't go into detail, but I tried whacking the backups, figuring that maybe the backups were corrupted, right? but that wasn't it. So interesting. So yeah, thank you, Rick. That, uh, that Rick was the one who sent that tip in, uh, or I guess he sent the question in during, uh, during show, show three nineteen, which was the catalyst to us actually learning that answer. So yeah, outstanding. That's awesome. I, I got I, the only thing I, I got to think it was due to the, the recent iTunes update. Sure. Kind of caused this or revealed this problem. Yep. Now yeah. Everything's great. Fascinating. So. All right. So that uh, I didn't realize it, but that was totally related to show 319. So now we'll uh, we'll move on to some follow ups from show 320 and then we'll answer some questions about uh, show 322. How's that sound, John? Fantastic. All right. Hello, John and Dave. This is Connor B. On the most recent Cool Stuff Found show, you were talking about an app, I think called like Act Monitor, um, something like that. And one thing you mentioned that it does was display the amount of video RAM your GPU is using. And as a matter of fact, in a somewhat recent update, I don't know exactly when this feature was added, but right now, one of your other favorite utilities, iStat Menus, actually report the amount of video RAM being used. Uh, I believe it is under the memory tab. Yeah, well, we'll actually cut you off here. It's it, it's actually under the CPU menu that it shows yes. GPU usage. And it shows it just as a, a progress bar, so you get a rough percentage by by glancing at it. But but certainly handy to, uh, to, to know if you're running at full tilt of your memory usage anyway of your GPU. Sure, and at monitor... Mm-hmm. What a what a wild coincidence. Uh, I happened to do a Monday's Mac gadget today, which goes an app monitor will not only tell you the amount of VRAM, but it will also tell you the uh, as far as I can tell the GPU utilization. That's right. So how busy it is. And also the frame rate. 
So, so this is the one utility that I found. So, so yes, absolutely. iStat menus did add this recently. I noticed this. So it's a, it's a good first place to look to see if you're exhausting it. Yep. But App Monitor it gives you about as much information about your GPU uh, that I found. Yep. So, uh, of course, we will link to that article. Cool. Uh, Johnny, who is the author of an app we mentioned during uh, Cool Stuff Found, we talked about, I think it was you, John, that talked about an app called Data Man. And Data Man, in a, in a nutshell, was just that app that tracks. It's an iOS app for both the iPhone and now for the iPad uh, that tracks your usage of the um, of your data package. And and I had assumed that it was doing something. Uh, uh, in fact, I wasn't sure I'd pose the question of, you know, how is it getting this data? And we heard back from from Johnny at, at Xvision, uh, where they uh, they're the ones that write this. And so he writes, uh, I'd like to answer some questions you have about the app. Number one, data man does not require a login to the carrier's website. It works all over the world with any carrier. It gets the statistics directly from the iOS device itself. You do not need to enter your carrier password. Uh, number two, Data Man uses iOS local push notification to send out alerts in the background when Data Man is not open, so it does not require a network connection for that. Number three, it has four custom alerts. You can define your preferred thresholds. The alerts are real time. This is unlike AT&T text alerts that you cannot customize, are limited to three fixed levels and suffer delays due to the carrier's database refresh time. Number four, it geotags, and of course, it's very useful for traveling and roaming. The last bit being a little bit of PR speak, but that's Johnny's job because he writes the app, and that's okay. So, uh, so very cool. It, it does not require; it's not relying on the carrier's data. Uh, it is looking at the phone's data. Now, of course, your bill is based on the carrier's data, but nice to have this um, making it easier to track it uh, on on your uh, on your end. Uh, also probably good for any discrepancies that come up, but, uh, but, but certainly, certainly great to know. So thanks Johnny. And, uh, and cool. I got thinking of data. I got a 30 second add on, I, as you know, I was just in Mexico recently. <clears throat> yeah. So I went to uh, AT&T and I bought the 2495, 20 megabytes of data. What a great deal price that is. <clears throat> but I digress. Wow. Yeah, I know. Holy cow. Yeah, it gets worse from there. Actually, wait, me, me, did you say mega? Megabytes. Bites? 20 megabytes, 24 wow. But, you know, I just wanted to check email and they stuff. Give you a while peck we're... on the cheek exactly. first. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> hey, keep it clean. <laughs> so anyway. There's nothing wrong with giving you a kiss, Pete. Yeah. That's clean. That's right. So uh, anyway, we're down there in Mexico, and I'm checking my email. I'm diligently checking my data, how much data I'm using, and I used about 10, 10 and a half megabytes. And of course I let Debbie use her phone said, Hey, you know, honey, I got the data here. We're good to go. And, uh, checked how much she used and guess what? Got home and there was a $91 charge on her portion of the bill for the 700 K. Yes. 700 K of data that she used in checking her email while we were in Mexico. Seems it's a per handset thing. So, guys, if you're going to travel abroad and you're going to take that, it's per handset. It's Whoa. not per account. That being said, I call AT&T and they said, all right, you showed the intent to do it. We'll charge you twenty four ninety five for hers as well. So it was a $72 oh. credit back. But, yeah, $91 for 700K of data. <laughs> <laughs> I'm it's going hard the, to keep uh, it clean. With, I know it. I know. It. Holy I, I, I cow! I want to go into the data provision business to uh, you know what a license to print money or steal money. I guess they have. Oh, so 
But I just wanted to mention that it's not it's a it's not an account thing. It's a per right. handset thing. If you guys are going to be traveling, right? Well, uh, I, and I guess you know, in retrospect, of course, thinking about it, it makes sense because all yeah. the data you buy is per handset. Exactly. Not, and yeah. I just I quickly went on the website and and checked it and assumed I was covered. And you know, while, while we're on this, you know, there's this whole thing about tethering and. And they charge you a fortune for the privilege of tethering before you even use it. And, and you know, my feelings on this are that how stupid that is of the carriers. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that they are in the business to make as much money as they possibly can and to soak us for everything. That That is their business, right? So, fine. But that's just business. But here's the thing. By having this high cost of entry, right? I mean, it's, it's what, 20 bucks to add tethering right. to, to my phone, right? Joe, you know, casual user or or Jane housewife isn't going to tether to add a tethering package to his or her iPhone uh, it, when when you have to pay 20 bucks to even figure out if you want to use it. Now, if AT&T gave it away with a very small amount of bandwidth included and then charged you for an overage or, you know, something like that, I would posit that they will make more money on tethering. If they if they allow people to try it out without charging them a gate fee, yeah. because I, as soon as I showed Lisa how tethering worked and how, oh, you could take the iPad, which now she loves. Uh, and and if you could tether it with your phone, she's like, oh, yeah, you got to jailbreak my iPhone. Like, right. <laughs> exactly. Of course. Exactly. She says, this changes everything. Like, yeah. She said, I never would have tried that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, well, did you see the latest, though, is that apparently AT&T, through some technologic technological magic, mm -hmm. is uh, proactively alerting people who have jailbreaked their phones and yeah. are using it for tethering, sending you a friendly reminder saying, you know, we're, we're kind of detecting that you're doing this and you haven't paid for it. So we're either... Either here's info on how to sign up or right. we're just going to proactively sign you up for it because the thing yeah. is people are trying to sneak around paying them for what they're using. Right. And, and, and obviously their network is smart enough to detect this. So I, I don't think it's that smart, though, based on uh, based on some of the kind of deeper reports that I've read and, and oh, okay. some of the people that I've heard from all it's doing is checking bandwidth usage. And, and okay. so they're targeting people that are using. Now, I don't I don't know that we haven't heard anything back from AT&T on this, but uh, but but that's that's kind of the presumption. And, and people who have gotten that mm -hmm. message that have called up and said, listen, it, it's, I'm not tethering. I don't even know what that is. I've just been doing a lot of Netflix. Boom. They've they've gotten uh, they've gotten no. a problem walked away. Right. You know, and the other thing, I'm not entirely sure they want a lot of people. Sucking down data no. and tethering because well, no, that, their network can't handle That's it. why there's the $20 fee. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Although, you know, I have to say when I was in Austin, um, first big concentration of tech people since the Verizon iPhone was released. Uh, there were some Austin residents that I knew that live downtown that have Verizon iPhones. And they said, yeah, my Verizon iPhone, it's been fantastic. Everything's been great. Until South by Southwest Interactive started. And at that moment in time, I could no longer make calls, check my email, do anything with my phone because it was totally overloaded. Now, of course, AT&T, this not being their first rodeo, they actually bring in extra 
bandwidth and extra towers, temporary towers that they set up during during South by Southwest. So AT&T people it wasn't so bad, but uh, yeah, Verizon people were pretty much completely shut down. So all those problems that that happened in high concentrations with AT&T iPhones, at least as far as South by Southwest was concerned, happened there, too. So, yeah, we, we shall see. But moving back to those tips that are going to make your computing life better. Our own Nancy Gravely here at the Mac Observer, she writes a column for us called Computing with Bifocals. She had a great little keystroke tip that uh, we wanted to share. If you are in uh, a carbon, uh, sorry, a cocoa app, and it's hard to know which is which, but I, it, uh, most of the Apple apps, Mail, Text Edit, Pages, Safari, are all written in cocoa, that being the newer uh, development environment. And then... Uh, and then a lot of third party apps are written this way too. allow you to automatically invoke spell check suggestions from the OS. So if the app has it, that's separate. But from the OS, uh, you can hit option escape as you've typed halfway through a word. And she's got a little uh, example here where she started typing the word attentively, but she typed attent and then hit option escape. Uh, and up comes this nice little list. You can choose it with the keyboard or with the mouse. And you can see attention, attentions, attentional, attentive, and all this other stuff just pops up in a list and, uh, and you choose it and off you go. So similar to how, what the iPhone is doing, uh, you can invoke something similar on the Mac. So uh, that's option escape. And, and she says it also works with the F5 key. Uh, but I was unable to get that to work on mine. But maybe it was a weird you know, function thing. Maybe I'd remap the key. So. We love keystrokes. We love all that stuff, John. Mm-hmm. Hey, have you tried that? Did you try the uh, the option escape thing? I stumbled across it, I think, by accident one day when I was renaming photos in okay. iPhoto. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a lot of times I'll find shortcuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'll be in an app and something will happen that I didn't expect. And then then I got to think back and, and try to figure out what I hit by accident or what keys I rolled over right inadvertently to, to cause this to happen. But yeah, one, one time it happened. I, I was renaming a photo from the default that the camera assigns it to something else. And because I'm pretty sure iPhoto is a cocoa, cocoa app. I think and, is, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it brought up a list of suggestions on how to spell the, the word I was over. That's so awesome. Uh, so very good. That's awesome. Uh, all right. On to some questions here. John, not of course, not you, John, of course, but listener John writes, I am using a 24 inch iMac and I love the 24 inch screen for most of my applications. The two applications that are driving me nuts, however, are Safari and Mail. As I write this email, the font size is set to Helvetica 12, which is a decent size font for most people to read. However, the font I see on my screen is very small and appears to be closer to a size 8 font. If I change the font size to something larger for my writing and editing pleasure, my mail recipients get an extra helping of huge font sent to them, and nobody likes to be yelled at. I would like to change the magnification of the font on my screen without actually increasing the size of the font in the email I send. The same thing is happening in Safari. When I load web pages, the font for all web pages is very small, and some of the text is just downright impossible for my old eyes to read. I use the command plus shortcut to increase the web page, web page magnification, but I have to do that on every page. I open Safari command plus open a link command plus skip over to a new bookmark command plus. I think you get the picture and it's very annoying command plus 
So the question is, can I set Safari to default to the magnified size for every web page? I looked in the Safari preferences and could not find any settings that helped. I also installed a Safari extension that claimed to remember the magnif magnification setting for all open tabs, but it did not work either. Either I have uninstalled this extension since it did not work. FYI, it was the only extension I used and I do not have any other extensions running currently. All right. So yes, John, there are some answers here and I'm going to start with Safari first because I think we've got an easy answer for you. And that is an extension called Safari magnifier, which does exactly what you are talking about now. Hopefully it doesn't sound like the extension you described. This isn't just for all open tabs. This is for everything. Uh, and it's a fairly simple thing to do previous to this extension. You could uh, do it by setting a custom CSS file and setting the body text to, you know, 150% of normal. And, and that seemed to work for everything. So my guess is that this extension is, is just doing something similar and hopefully that'll work for you. Uh, so, We'll assume that Safari is is taken care of now with mail. Well, well, Safari, uh, the only thing I want to point out, I, I didn't see it mentioned in the email, Dave, but there is under appearance. You can set the standard and fix with the font and size. Right. But Web pages can override that and often do. OK, with CSS and other. Yes. Things. OK. Yes. All right. Because that's yeah. one place. But one simple place to look. But yeah, that's right. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. That 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 is almost. Well, it's not a. It it's relevant, but the size is less relevant than the font that's chosen there. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for mail, this is an interesting process. Uh, the first thing to do, it, it, there is no zooming for mail. Actually, there is when you're reading a message. I think that same command plus will work to uh, to zoom in a, a message. Um, and I, I'm going to try this here. Yeah, it is. So that'll zoom in. But for composing a message. Uh, you are stuck with the um, and you know what I just did, John? I, this is great because I just hit the uh, time machine button on my computer here. So, it's oh, gonna, it's going to try and zoom me into time machine in a minute. But mm. uh, but we'll see what happens. Whoops. So, well, yeah, whoops is right. That's right. I got to get that out of the dock. Um, so first go into mail, go into preferences, go into fonts and colors and set the message font to whatever size you wish to use when you compose. Now, yes, based on the way you're talking about this, John, this will increase the size of the, the font that your recipients get. However, you can stop that. If while still in preferences, you go to the composing tab, uh, you can uh, change the bot. And now, of course, I've got time machine up on my screen. This is brilliant. I can't do anything. John, you can still hear me, I assume, right? Yes. Oh, that's cool. So you're saying what fonts and colors in mail? I'm, I'm no, looking at it. No, no, no. You have to where, go where over to you? the composing tab. So we've already changed okay, the message composing. font. Got it. Right. So All we right. go to the composing tab. And then what we do is we change message format from mm -hmm. rich text to plain text. Oh, so I'm defaulted to that. To plain text. Yeah. A lot of people are default. It, I, I'm not sure what mail's default is now because I keep, you know, rolling my preferences forward with each new OS release. But if it's set to rich text, the people receiving your message will get all the formatting and stuff that you've done. If you set it to plain text, they will get a plain text email that will be displayed in whatever font they've chosen to read messages by default. So uh, now if you do this, then you won't be able to do bold and italic and all that stuff in your email. And if you do start doing bold and italic in your email, 
Mail will warn you. It'll say, uh, hey, this message is in plain text. We've got to convert it to rich text in order for this formatting to make sense. Uh, so you'll be aware that this that this change is happening. You can see it if you go uh, while you're composing a message. If you go to the format menu at the bottom of that, it will either say make rich text or make plain text to toggle back and forth between the two. So if you make it so that you're composing in plain text by default and then also set your message font size to something larger that should accomplish your uh, your goal of wanting to compose in a larger font without berating your email recipients with the same. Yeah. Good, John. Good to me. I, I think that's why I defaulted to that. Yeah. The plain stuff. Cause I don't want to subject to, I want my email to be as boring and uneventful and, and as plain as possible. Well, I, so I, think that's I why hate I defaulted it. to that. When I get an email from somebody that's on exchange or outlook or something, uh, yeah. it comes in, in a very small version of courier. And, and I just hate reading that. It, you know, I mean, like John, it's like I, I want I want something larger. I've gone and chosen a font that I like, you know, and then th this is kind of the whole thing behind uh, that old bare bones product. I guess they discontinued it called Mailsmith and it was plain text only, please. You know, and and there's something to that with email because your screen is different than mine. And what mm -hmm. what what listener John is talking about here with his 24 inch iMac is 12 point Helvetica for him appears a lot smaller because of the tight resolution of his screen, uh, then, uh, then say it might appear for, for someone else out there. And, and that's, that's his, that's his issue. So he might want to compose at 16 point Helvetica, but you know, if i if I'm on a larger screen to, uh, or a larger, less compressed screen size than his, uh, then, you know, it's going to appear larger. So yeah, not everybody's running at the same dot pitch rate and all that good stuff. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Moving on. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's all we can do. That's all we can do. We can't we move can't. backwards, John. Oh, well, we could, but th that would open uh, a temporal rift and that's uh, just bad. All right. Well, we're going to talk about something we've mentioned a little bit in the past, but uh, so hopefully we won't open too much of a temporal rift. Garrett writes, I got into podcasts about three months ago and have been listening to shows such as yours, Adam Christensen's MacCast and Ken Ray's Mac OS Ken. My question for you applies specifically to Ken Ray's show, being that he releases his shows daily. My question is, is there an app for the iPhone that will automatically download new podcasts daily? I know that if you're subscribed to a podcast via iTunes, it will automatically download new shows. But I only sync my iPhone about three times a week. If you could recommend me an app to help out, please let me know. I love the show. Uh, Pete, I have an Ooh, answer, but, but Pete's <laughs> hand is waving here Ooh, in the air. So me. go ahead, Pete. Oh, yeah, Podcaster. That's it. It's just the way I've, it's changed the way I listen to podcasts. So you're, you're talking awesome. about, just to clarify, you're talking about an app in the app store, Absolutely. in the iOS app store called Called Podcaster. Podcaster. Right. And it, it'll download uh, right, right over the internet. It'll pull down your episodes. You can manage it. And it's pretty configurable. What it'll keep, what it won't keep. Uh, you can set whether you want to see new episodes first or old episodes first. So the order it plays in, what you want to keep. Uh, but I haven't synced in months to my... <laughs> I just so my laptop, he, and I used to do it two, three times a day. Yeah. So to, you know, do you mean to tell me that this eliminates the need for you to use iTunes to sync podcasts to yes, your iDevice? Yeah. Well, yeah. hey, that, that's an option. Cool. I like options. Yeah. All right. Oh yeah. If if you're doing, you know, I, I'm the same way. I I you know when he said he only only 
sinks three times a week. I'm thinking, holy cow, that's a lot of sinking to do. I, you know, if I sink three times a month, that's been a lot for me. It's probably three times a quarter that I bother to sink my iPhone. And, uh, but you know, my problem is I, I often don't think, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be in the car and want to listen to podcasts. I don't think about that ahead of time. I'm out somewhere and I think, Oh, I've got a long drive home. There's nobody in the car with me. Uh, I, you know, I want to download a new episode of, of whatever. And uh, so I just launch podcaster and tell it to go get it. And it'll actually even stream the episodes to you will. over three. Yeah, you don't even have to download it. It'll yeah. stream it. And uh, yeah, which can be a little funky if you've got, you know, driving through bandwidth pockets or whatever. It, it is 99 cents though. So yeah, that whole buck is going to kill yeah, you. Exactly. Now yeah. bargain at 10 times the price. It, it's a $10 app. It yep. really is. It, and it'll, it'll do um, uh, uh, push notifications now. So if you are subscribed to a show that, unlike us, is not timely and regular with their with their production, you can tell it uh, and you could do this for our show, too, if you want. But you can tell it, look, send me a push notification when new episodes for for this particular show. And you can set it on a per show basis. When this show's available, send me a push notification. Oh, that's cool. I didn't even notice that in the uh, in the options. Yeah, because one of the things I do, I just have mine set to to refresh all shows four times a day. Wow. At noon. 6, okay. 6 p.m. Midnight and 6 a.m. Yeah. If it's on the air, it'll go grab them. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So there it is. That's untethered. That's the yes. Untethered podcast management. That was the title I gave to this uh, this segment here. And, and it's it's mm. exactly it. So. Any uh, any any anything to add there, John? I assume you had not yet tried podcaster. Mm. No, I don't, I don't really doing listen it now. to many podcasts. You know. I know. Just well, you don't drive account. anywhere. Sure, I do. Well, but not on a regular basis right now. Um, I do. Okay. But you know what I do in the car, I Dave? I didn't mean that as a, an attack. It's just, it's just an observation. Oh, I don't no. drive anywhere either. It's okay. <laughs> oh, no. I, I try to get out at least once once a day. Wow. That's more than me. Otherwise, I'm going to devolve into uh, something <laughs> like me, I guess. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. But no, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one guess what I listen to in the car, Dave. NPR? Uh, uh, sometimes. Well, okay. no, that's only in the mornings. Oh, but no. So, but but you're accurate, Dave. So, so I I listen to this device, which a lot of our listeners may not have heard of, but it's called an AM FM radio. Oh no 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 no! We're sending them backwards, John. If they've already made the leap to podcast, we don't want to remind. No, them I got I got to admit what what I, I like to listen to. No, what I like to listen to is actually it's a it's a local uh, rock station. It's a uh, I think it's a. Is it CBS? I think it may be CBS. I'll have to look it up. But no, it's a, it's a it's a local rock station, and you I you don't want to admit this to an audience of podcast fans. I, I think my grandfather used to listen to one of those. <laughs> no, I will yeah. admit this. Well, I also have a CB radio in the car, though I don't use it that much, right. but, but it's still entertaining at times. And I also have a police scanner, which again That's is fun. entertaining at times. Now, have you jumped to? I know I'm taking us on a tangent of a tangent here, but have you jumped to a digital capable uh, police scanner so that you can hear all the new stuff that's happening? Um, you know, a lot of the local departments have not gone to the trunked or digital systems. Oh, really? So, no, like my uh, Fairfield is still on. Uh, I think they're on a, a UHF or VHF. Yeah. I forget, but they're yeah. they're in the 150 range. But no, they. Uh, uh, some of the towns have gone to these you know, crazy trunk systems where you can only hear bits and pieces. It may be digital or if it's analog, then it jumps, jumps all over the place. But uh, no, here's the one. WCBS FM 101.1 New York's greatest hits. I can pick that up from uh, Connecticut. 
Hey, I, I still like FM radio. I'm, I'm just strange that way. Oh. Though my next car will have a... Uh, well, the other thing is I, I, I don't have a uh, input for, for an uh, iDevice. And, and, you know, I got to say, Dave, those FM transmitter devices, because uh, I'm in an area, maybe, maybe you aren't, but I'm in an area where there really is not a free FM station. Right. Uh, and, and I found none of those work to my satisfaction just because I'm in an area where all the, the stations are blasting. Yeah. It, it, those things are tough to, to make work in, in congested environments. Mo- most cars, thankfully, at least now have, uh, you know, mini eight inputs so you can just plug right in and, and go. So, yeah. So yeah. I may upgrade, you know, it's the radio that came with the car, so I may upgrade it. Um, it has yeah. a, uh, no, I don't use this, but it does have a cassette player and I do not use that. All right. I, I well, but you, what you cassettes. could get is, uh, yes. and I can't think of it a off the top plug-in. of my head. Yes. No, you're right. There's a cassette plug-in device, which... Uh, Griffin, I think, I don't know if right. they still make it, but they were making one. There were lots of them made where basically you'd, you'd slide this cassette-shaped thing in that had a little cord coming out, and you plug the cord into your headphone jack, and it just pumps the sound in. Now, Griffin made one that was smart, and if you told it to fast-forward to the next song... It would actually it would connect it to your dock connector and it would actually right. skip. It would it would sense that the thing was trying to fast forward and it would skip to the next song or whatever. So so there is that. So, you, you know, you could you could have some fun with that. So, and that, that right. does so, have a much better sound than the FM thing. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give them a call and see if they still make it. Check it out uh, for, for the one or two people that are listening that still have a cassette. Oh, I, I bet there's lots, actually. Yeah, I was going to. John, did you sell your eight track player? Well, <laughs> I never had an eight track. No, no, I, really, I started. I, I started wow. kicking it with cassettes. Uh, I still have some CDs, but most of them I ripped to uh, to iTunes. So, yeah. uh, all right, back to the present, well, guys. Sorry of- to drag you into the past. <laughs> Quit busting your chaps. And that's that's <laughs> right. Uh, speaking about sound, we got a question from uh, listener N. And uh, N writes, I listened to your wise advice and bought the Audio Engine 2 desktop speakers and while I was at it, picked up the W1 wireless adapters so I could send the music to my awesome new speakers remotely. I love them. However, I would very much like to send only music from iTunes or, say, Pandora to the speakers, but keep all my system sounds like email notifications from Eudora, etc. on my MacBook. I've Googled and found all manner of confusing instructions to just get Soundflower or use Audio Hijack Pro, but without too many details. I tried following the directions, but cannot seem to get it working right. Can one of you wonderful gentlemen explain in easy step-by-step instructions exactly how I can send music to the speakers and keep my alerts and Eudora and system sounds and all of that playing on the built-in speakers of my MacBook. Thanks ever so much. Okay. Yes, we can. It's it, for the, for the listening audience. It's important to note that this device, the way he has it set up is a USB audio output. Okay. So regardless of exactly which output he's using and how it's working, it is not plugged into his headphone jack. If it were, what we're about to describe would be impossible because ever since I think Leopard and maybe Tiger, uh, if you plug something in to the audio output jack, it cancels all the sound that would have normally been going to the computer's internal speakers. But with in his case, because it's USB, the two can be addressed simultaneously, and that's what we need. So, uh, we also need some software because Mac OS 10 will not let us do this um, in, 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 you know, 
with the with the stock stuff that comes with it. So the idea is what we want to do is take audio coming from the uh, from a specific application and route it to an alternate audio output device, i.e. his new uh, USB device, which which would be his W1 to his speakers. So Audio Hijack Pro is probably going to be the simplest way to do this because it, it gives you the ability to do it all in one stop shopping. Audio Hijack Pro, I think, is 30, 32 bucks or so. So it's not it's not terrible. You can download a trial and, and test it out. So the idea is you go into Audio Hijack Pro, you go to the session menu, you choose new. Uh, that will create a new session uh, from on the first tab, which is labeled input. You set it to the source type of application. And then if we're going to do iTunes, we choose iTunes. If we're going to do Safari, we have to do all these steps over again and, and make a, a separate session for Safari. And you can have multiple sessions going simultaneously. So we've chosen application and we choose iTunes. Once we've gotten that chosen, then we go to the last tab in Audio Hijack Pro, which is labeled effects. From this, we add a new effect from the 4FX effect library called Auxiliary Device Output. What this will do is we're telling it to take anything that's captured through this and send it to somewhere else. And this somewhere else is going to be from the device menu. You choose the audio engine W1. Uh, if you're doing this with another set of USB speakers, you would choose whatever those are called. Uh, on this same pane, you leave source as default. Now uh, you highlight the session and then you and then you click OK. You're done. Uh, when you highlight the session, uh, and it'll be named iTunes by default because that's the name of the app that we are uh, that we are working with. You click the hijack button that will take the audio from iTunes and do with it what we've told it to do, which in this case is send it to this other output. We haven't told it to do anything else. We could do all sorts of other things. We could add reverb to it. We could you know, do all sorts of crazy stuff, but we're not going to. Uh, and we just send it out. Now, it will also be coming through your internal speakers because you have not changed your speakers on your Mac. They're still set to come out internally. Right next to the hijack button in Audio Hijack is a mute button. If you hit mute, it will mute where the sound would have gone by default and only route it through uh, this other path. So clicking hijack and then mute will automatically send all the sound out. And that's it. So you set it up once. This session will persist in Audio Hijack Pro even if you quit so you can just relaunch it and uh, and off you go again if you wanted to do this with pandora you'd have to hijack all the sound from safari uh to do that because that's where that's where pandora is playing um if you didn't want to hijack all the safari safari sounds you could say go download uh you know iCab or firefox or you know use some alternate browser just for um pandora and then that way, the rest of your browser sounds would be coming through your computer speakers and only the sounds from that other browser would, uh, which would be your kind of Pandora dedicated browser would work. So any thoughts there, John? Lots of thoughts <laughs> <clears throat> oh, about this. Yes. Well, I guess one way to solve this, of course, but, but not with the equipment he has. So I guess, of course, built into OS 10 is AirPlay and the Airport Express and that that could certainly be a way to solve it just for iTunes. Right. Um, but but I want to ask you, because I, I haven't tried this, Dave, but uh, I, I think our, our pals at Rogue Amoeba also make a couple of different apps. So they make something called Airfoil and also Airfoil Speakers. Would that be appropriate for this? It 
It could be. Yes. Yes. So, you know, it's important to note that the guys at Rogue Amoeba are smart and are happy to reuse any uh, anything they've learned from one app for another. Right. So Airfoil is built to take sound from one computer and route it to other computers as essentially slaves or mirrors of that sound. So if you have speakers connected to your Uh, Let's say you've got five computers in the house, right? And you've got, you know, iTunes on one of them and then sets of speakers connected to the other four uh, computers in the house. You could use Airfoil to uh, send the sound to all these other devices and it would play on them simultaneously. So as you move throughout your house, you could hear uh, all the very, you know, the same music in the same time, all synced up. Uh, coming out of all these other speakers that are just slaves off of a computer and it does it over the network in order to make airfoil do this, you would need to set up your computer, not only as the airfoil uh, host, you'd also need to set it up as an airfoil client. And so you'd need to on the same computer run airfoil and airfoil speakers uh, okay. And have the computer kind of connect to itself. Airfoil speakers is so if in 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 the example I described, you'd have airfoil running on the main Mac and then airfoil speakers running on all the other computers. And I say computers because it is a cross platform thing. So you could have your Windows machine doing it. The airfoil speakers app connects all the way back to the main computer and gets its sound from there in order to have airfoil do this on one computer to route to a different audio device. And that is what I do. But I have to have airfoil speakers running and airfoil running. So it's two apps on one computer. It's a little so that so that part of it's complex choosing the uh, because it's single purpose software, essentially uh, choosing the app that it's going to route and all that stuff is much simpler. You don't have to go through the steps of creating a new session and all that. You just say uh, grab iTunes and go and it grabs iTunes and goes. But uh, but I, I, I think for for this purpose here, Audio Hijack Pro is probably a little bit easier. Um, and airfoil, you know, the thing is airfoil is 25 bucks. I think audio hijack pro is like 32. So for the extra seven bucks, you get a whole lot more flexibility in case you ever need to do anything else down the road. So that's, that's my, uh, them, them's my thoughts. I got them. Okay. Our second sponsor for this show is circusponies.com with notebook 3.0. Now, uh, Notebook 3.0 is for the Mac, and they also have Notebook for the iPad. Pete, you use Notebook on your Mac, don't you? I do. You want to uh, you want to tell uh, tell our listeners about that? Works since great, lasts a long time. No, it's <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, sorry. Pete. No, I know. Uh, <laughs> little, uh, some let me more tell details, you. perhaps. It's uh, it's awesome. I mean, it's it's like a, a spiral notebook that you have, or a three ring. However, you can set it up to look exactly like a spiral or a three ring. But the beautiful thing is, uh, it's uh, fully searchable index. It indexes when you type words in there. If you know you've written notes on a subject and you don't know exactly where you've left it, you have the ability to find that just by a keyword. If you know there's one word in that note, you can mm. go back and find it. It's tabbable. You can throw in pictures. You can throw in graphs. You can draw in it using your mouse. You can really? bring in PDFs. You can uh, you can bring in audio. And, and then the really cool thing is if you need it <clears throat> later on somewhere else, you can, uh, of course, you could use Dropbox to go get it, but uh, you can publish it as an HTML page to a website. Your notebooks are fully publishable as HTML, um, but you can you can make neat little logos and stuff with the shapes and the colors and the fills. And I mean, it, it's awesome. And I think 
that uh, Screencast Online has a free tutorial uh-huh. that goes along with it too to to help you really get into using a lot of the features that are in there. But it, now, it's now extremely what, versatile. What uh, just kind of quickly what. Give, give, give me a couple of examples. Give our listeners a couple of examples of what you've used it for. Uh, most most effectively, I used it when I was going through upgrade training in the airplane I'm in. When, you know, and I had sections. You know, here's here's the electrical section on the MD11, and through went through there, and I pulled out graphs that were particularly useful for me to look at and help me understand. You know how how the DC electric system worked on this airplane. But, you know, they'd have three or four graphs in there, well, or, or images, and one goes, stuck out at me, this works well. Okay, that's that's the one I threw in the notebook for studying. Got it. Um, you know, hydraulic system, same thing. You know, you can put in graphs and notes and your limitations and organize it by section all, all the way throughout. So hydraulics, electrics, fuel... Um, so if we have any M- you know, eleven pilots, that, that's right. Could, could they get this notebook from? Well, you? actually, uh, <laughs> actually, I think I let that domain name just expire, but uh-huh. I, but I still have it. I could probably actually, if someone wants it, um, I, I could uh, make it available. More than happy to. Although there aren't too many MD eleven pilots. I guess yeah. Uh, I guess you, know, you might know most FedEx of them already. And, yeah, FedEx and UPS have have them all anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's just a fabulous way to organize you're thinking and you know you can add pages to it take pages away unlike a real spiral notebook if you run out of pages you're you're kind of out of luck and have to move to another notebook so right. it's it's a virtual spiral notebook and you can do so much more with it, it it's a fabulous piece of gear cool it, yeah. all right it is uh the mac version of course is available at circusponies.com there's a free trial uh, once you're hooked, it's forty nine ninety five for a standard license. And if you are affiliated with school K through twelve and universities, uh, it is twenty nine ninety five. So you can save twenty bucks. Notebook for the iPad, which allows you to both edit and see any of the content that you've created your, on your Mac, is twenty nine ninety nine. And of course, there is no free trial available for that because that's the way the App Store works. So, uh, but you can get to all of that from Circus all right john let's jump to uh michael here and well we'll Mm -hmm. we'll see we'll see where michael takes us michael writes i gotta get to where michael wrote do you guys have any suggestions on data recovery software Uh, this is in relation to accidentally deleted files hopefully you can help so let's take it from there john okay you oh, you want me to talk? Yeah, you go. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you the the uh, piece that, that I recommend, Dave, and I have used in the past, and and I think it's one of the better programs to do this, but it's from our pals at ProSoft. Okay. Engineering, and it's called Data Rescue. Now, the the bad news here, so of course, uh, when when we had the, uh, the, the question here, uh, my first statement, which was probably kind of obvious, is uh, I assume that a backup is not available and the time machine was not used, which, yes, that was the case. So, you know, just to beat it in everybody's head, you know, time machine, it's it's free, you know, get an extra drive and just try to run it every now and then, or a carbon copy cloner or super duper or whatever. Yep. But in this case, for whatever reason, it was not available. Now, I found Data Rescue to be pretty good. Uh, what I like about Data Rescue is that it will use various criteria to recover things. Now, the big problem, Dave, with, with I think, Mac OS X and, and most other Unix-type file systems is you have the part of the disk that keeps track of the files and what's where, 
And then you have the data itself. And, and from what I found, based on running these utilities, the part of the disk that keeps track of what's where and the structure and the naming uh, gets a, a lot of churn. So what, what products, uh, or at least what I've seen Data Rescue will do, and, and I you know, suggested this, and I believe they, they have a uh, limited free trial, or it will recover files uh, under a certain size, is that they'll come back not with the name of the files or necessarily the, the structure of the data, but they will come back with something. And, and I think what they do is they'll look at the file, and kind of like the OS does this sometimes, they'll look at the file and say, well, I see this at the beginning, this at the end, or they'll see a blob of data and say, you know what, I bet you that's a file. Huh. Because that could get messed up too. And they'll look at it and say, you know, that looks like a JPEG, or that looks like a Word file, because all files have a certain predictable structure, or at least most files do. Sure. And I think that's what Data Rescue does, and I think you can even teach it. So Data Rescue has a number of options where you can say, okay, do a quick recover, do a you know, do a more detailed, thorough search. And if it does find things, typically, and I think that this was his follow-up, is that, you know, it didn't come back really with, you know, the names and the structure that I was expecting, though it did recover some of the data for me. Right. So, right. Um, and I think that's just the nature of the beast, uh, based on how the file system works. Yep. And, and one thing uh, that Michael noted in his reply after he tried data rescue was that it found the files, but it did not name them the names he was expecting. Uh, and, and that is uh, kind of a, an, a, an effect of doing things this way. You have removed the file from your, from your Mac. The name is not stored with the file. It's stored in the table of contents and you've already wiped it out of the table of contents by deleting it. So the Mac really has no intelligent way of knowing what the name of the file should be. So it, it simply goes and says, yeah, here's a document and it, you know, lists, you know, I found five documents. And so here they all are. You, you got to look at them and figure out what their names are and what they were. I mean, I think in some cases, maybe certain files may have the name embedded within the file, mm -hmm. but I suspect whatever type of files, and I, I don't think it went into detail, is that the, in this case, the files themselves did not have the name of the file right. within it. It was just the raw data. You know, right images and, and things like that without, without going into a lot of detail yep. or digging into the files. So um, that's my current favorite. Uh, I think it does the best job that it can. But uh, the, the one warning is that if you do have an event where you, whoops, you deleted a file, stop everything. <laughs> right. The more you use the machine, the worse it's going to get because the, the computer is always looking for space to, to put new stuff. And, right. and it doesn't care that stuff was there before because it, yeah, it doesn't care. That's right. It's, it's doing its you, job. You so, told it to delete it. That's right. Yeah. So the one tip is if this happens to you, as soon as you realize you've, you've, uh, you've done something terrible, stop using the machine, shut it down and then get one of these utilities to, uh, to try and help you. Well, data rescue is, is one that I, uh, do, do you have any others uh, that, that you, you've, you've I, used Dave? No, I, I, I actually haven't used any. Uh, thankfully I haven't had a, a need uh, I, I know of data rescue. I also know of, you know, the other thing we've been talking about, the Mac keeper has a, a, an undelete function in it too. And I, I have, I have not tested either one in a kind of in a, a real world. Oh my gosh. Scenario. But, uh, but I, you know, it would be a decent test. Actually, we, it would be, it would be a fun thing I, to experiment. I with. started to look at theirs yep. and the thing is, I didn't have the time because the drive that I was looking at. So I had a drive where I did delete a file intentionally, but I wanted to sure. try out. And I think they have a one size fits all is that they don't have a, 
MacKeeper doesn't have different levels of data recovery, uh, like data rescue. Okay. Because when I started running it, it said, um, all right, it's going to take me about 24 hours to scan your entire drive to look for stuff to recover. And, Got and it. I didn't have that sort of time. Sure. So, sure. so I trust that it, it uh, what it's doing is a very thorough examination of everything on the disk to, to bring it back. But yep. I, I didn't want to wait a day for uh, to see what it would do. But I'm sure. And I think I ran it at one point and it started coming up with stuff okay that it looked like it could recover and it had numerical it, you know it, it didn't yeah. have the file name it, it, it started listing things but again i didn't run into its completion in, so, a, in a general sense i i think the uh the the advice you've given john is good though it's you know as soon as you you know don't wait a week and say oh yeah i still gotta you know still gotta undelete that file no make it your a number one priority and and by all means, if you do have to wait for whatever reason, don't do anything else with the drive, um, because the, just by even just having your computer booted up, things are happening in the background with Mac OS X uh, in a variety of different ways that may cause that that file to be uh, permanently overwritten. All right, moving on. Uh, Harvey writes, I noticed that iCal is forcing every or Apple is forcing everyone to upgrade from the old mobile me calendar to the new mobile me calendar no later than May 5th. Given that that's happening, could you please discuss the potential pitfalls, how to prepare and other need to know information? I've heard that switch does not preserve all the calendar data, which is why I've held off. Please advise how to avoid losing older entries. If you believe this is a legitimate risk. Okay. So Harvey's right. May 5th is the day. At least as as they've announced now, maybe they'll you know push it off a little bit, but I doubt it. They they're giving everybody a lot of notice. So uh, what's happening is we're switching from the older, very very proprietary way of Apple having synced your calendar data to this new, uh, based on a public standard that of course Apple uh, helped or either did develop called CalDAV, uh, and MobileMe is going to just host a CalDAV or is hosting a CalDAV server. And they'll take care of migrating your data from the old to the new. So what steps could and should you take if you have not done yet done this upgrade? In a general sense, uh, yes, Harvey, there is always a legitimate risk of losing data anytime you're mucking with things like this. My guess is that Apple's gone through as many scenarios as they could have imagined. And then, of course, everyone else that has done it so far has been a guinea pig and they've likely tweaked their system uh, since then. But uh, but still, you want to make sure you preserve your data. So the first thing to do is in iCal, you want to do a backup. And uh, and I believe that's done by going into file export and export iCal archive. And that's going to go ahead and back up everything. So so that's step number one. Do that. Save that file somewhere and uh, and don't mess with it. So that that's going to have your data. Then. The conversion is done on the server side by Apple. So the next thing you want to do is make sure MobileMe has synced and everything is good. So, you know, go into MobileMe and, and press the sync button, make sure it syncs and then go online to at me.com and log into your calendar and make sure do some spot checking. Make sure that old events that you think are there are there, new events that you think should be there are there. Make sure You've you've checked it all out. Once that's good to go, and once you feel confident that the data that lives on the server is accurate, then uh, I believe it's in the lower left. If it's still in the same spot it was when I did it a couple of months back, 
there's a little checkbox or a little link that says, you know, go here to begin the migration. At this point, uh, patience is your friend. So, you know, you will not. And, and so a couple of things, a, you're going to have to wait, uh, probably figure an hour. Uh, it might take, it might be shorter than that might be a little longer, uh, but don't close your browser window because if you do, the change will continue happening in the background, but you won't have any way of seeing the progress. Uh, so leave that. And there's no way to get back to seeing the progress if you close it. So leave the browser window open and, uh, and you can see what's happening now. What might happen to you is you might just get a message that says, uh, this is taking longer than we thought. So we'll shoot you an email when it's done and they will shoot you an email when it's done. But yeah, wait, I remember that I got an email. Yeah. So okay. yeah, wait it out. I, you know, I converted a lot of data. I had data out there going back to 1992, I think. And, uh, and it worked fine, but, but it was, I, I got nervous. I was, you know, I'm an impatient guy. You can tell I'm kind of high energy and a little bit crazy. So, uh, so I got online with one of the, with one of the mobile me, uh, live chat support people. And they were really helpful because they could look in the background and say, Oh, you're converting, you know, whatever, whatever it was 9,000 entries. And, uh, yeah, it's still going, it's taking some time, but, uh, but don't worry about it. You'll be all right. And, uh, and sure enough, it was, but wait until it's done. Once it is mobile me and iCal will actually make all their changes for internally for themselves. Mobile me will, will notice that this has happened. It'll trigger a change in iCal and in theory, it will move all of your calendars out of the quote unquote on my Mac section into a new section. That is just the link to the, uh, to the CalDAV server there in, in iCal. Once all that's done, you're good to go. As we've said before, then go back into mobile me and uncheck the box that says to sync calendars in the system preference pane, because that is no longer related to uh, the CalDAV stuff that's happening in well, iCal. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's uh, not. I, I, I agree with you, but do you think you necessarily want to uncheck that box in all situations, Dave? Yes. If you've moved, if all the calendars have moved to your mobile me, you don't want to have it also in the background trying to sync with stuff that, that you're not using anymore. Yeah. You want to, you definitely want to turn that off. Hmm. Yeah. Cause that's, cause that's going offline. You, you don't want to rely on that. That that's no. the part that's dying. All right. All right. Yeah. I, I thought I saw an email in our box from someone saying that that capability that's in the mobile me system preference. Well, we talked about this last show. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it will sync the stuff that's on your Mac, but, uh, but it's, but it's not going to last. Right. You know, that that's the whole point is any syncing that mobile me is taking care of for you is only going to happen, uh, with those calendars that are attached to your CalDAV server and anything listed quote unquote on my Mac in that section in mobile nah. me will go away. All right. Yeah. So it it, it, it won't go that. away. It'll stay on your Mac. Right. But right, it will not right. sync. Yeah. yeah. So. OK. So they eventually have to. Yeah. As, as, as we, we talked, uh, the, the, the I don't know if they did a very good job of getting that information out. Yeah. The bit about unchecking the, the, the syncing uh, box in the mobile me preference pane. I don't I don't know that Apple has even said to do that. Uh, the, to me, it seems seems like the right move. Busy Cal suggests that you do that. Uh, I'm not sure what Apple's official position is on it, but they should have been more clear about that. Yeah. It's, it's very confusing. <laughs> it is. It is. All right. Uh, how are we doing on time here? Oh, let's see. Um, 
All right, let's do. Uh, like. We'll do Chris very, very quickly yeah. here. Okay, uh, that's a good one to uh, to yeah. to to wrap things up with a challenge. It's perhaps. a geek challenge. That's right. So Chris writes. I have a quick question about the Finder, and I hope this can be a cool stuff found edition. In my case, uh, well, we need to see if it exists. He says, I love Pathfinder, but I've gone back to using the regular Finder and have been using the Total Finder app on top of it. I'm looking for something that can tell me the speed at which something is being transferred when I'm copying it, i.e. a file from an external hard drive, hard drive copying to my desktop on my local drive. I remember this being in Pathfinder, but I'm looking for an alternative, whether it be a standalone application or some type of Finder extension. Anything would be great. Okay, so what Chris wants is something that will tell him during a Finder copy how fast that data is coming, be it a network copy or a local copy or something like that. And I, I don't think we know of anything that off the top. I certainly don't know of anything off the top of my head that will that will answer this for him. I other do. than Other than Pathfinder, of course. So. Oh, I do. Do you? Should I should I tell you? Yeah. I'm just going to tell you and not anybody else. Well, well, Dave, how about, um, you know, activity monitor has disk activity. Sure. But that's not going to, that's not answering his, I mean, that that'll give you a, an idea as to what's happening, but it's not telling you about True. that particular copy. Right. It's not doing what okay. Pathfinder right. did. Yeah. All right. I'll agree with you. All right. So, so the few suggestions I had were as follows. So activity monitor, of course, and also, um, at monitor both have, uh, items that will show disk activity, both data read per second and data written per second. Right. But you're entirely correct in that if you have multiple things happening on the hard drive, which you always then this do. Figure, well, okay, I'll go with you to a certain extent right. on that. Right. Well, I'm looking right now at my mini. I'm reading zero bytes and I'm writing zero bytes of data per second. Right. So I, I think it could give you a rough approximation. Right. Uh, the, the caveat when I wrote back to Chris was... um. Yeah, you know, try to make sure that you're not doing any other file reading or writing, especially swap and stuff like that, because I'm sure that would show up in disk activity, or I, I would guess it would. But yeah, so if you're just transferring one file, I would say disk activity in either activity monitor or app monitor would be one way to do it. The, the other utility I've seen, Dave, is, and I've used this when I've done some benchmarking, is iStat Menus has a, also has a disk activity menu, yep. which yep. I think they all tie into the same... API or part of the OS that will show read and write values for the various drives that you have. That's true. Yeah. In bytes or megabytes or however per second. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing you could do is when you're transferring a file, the finder will typically give you a rough estimate. And if you do a little math, you, you could probably that, get a rough, that, that rough estimates like it's, it's well, like, so I, I you know, know it's like sometimes like granite. Well, well, sometimes if you're talking a teeny little file, then yeah, it's all over the place. If you're talking a, a big file, then I would think the estimate that it gives you. So if you know the size of the file and then the time estimate that it's it gives you. It's rough like those jaggy rocks that you can fall on climbing at the beach there, John. It's pretty rough. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I, I, I trust it within an but, order of magnitude, okay? okay. It's, it's, it's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Right. Right. Yeah, so, you but, but you have to have a controlled experiment where you're only doing a single file and that'll give you and then you can do a reality check. You know, what's the throughput of my network or my drive or the interface and just see if, if it even makes sense. All uh, right. So we um, we, we, we so. Uh, OK, so we've got some some ways of approximating this. But if anybody knows of an extension, 
or or any utility that's going to tell us this until Krista is standalone. That would be great. The other thing I'm going to do is make sure that uh, the folks who write Total Finder hear this segment and maybe just maybe we can get them to add it into a future version because that would be really cool. Don't you think, John? Yeah, we love Total Finder. It's awesome. Uh, I love it. Hey, I, I do, too. It's become a finder a- with tabs. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I didn't reverb it, but, you know, that that's the one compelling thing that it does. Well, the other I think it does is um, I do believe it lets you do a cut and paste. Yes. Yes. Which uh, the normal finder does not let you right. do that. That's right. Yeah. So that's nice, too. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, how the finder should be. So, Dave, oh, I hear the band. The band's here. The band's I don't know what all that means. Here. Or the gang's all here. Yeah, something like that. You can call us if you want to send in comments, ask questions. If you have anything to add, you can call us at 206-666-GEEK, which John is. 4335. Of course, you can email us, Dave. And if I had to email us, I would email us at feedback at macgeekgab. Here it comes. Here it comes. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. I I knew you were going to say feedback at macgeekgab. Com. Uh, Pete, will you quit interrupting us with Sorry. wrong information? It's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I meant what I said. <laughs> I knew what S- you meant. <laughs> Stick to it, man. <laughs> and I meant what I knew. <laughs> iTunes comments, always welcome. <laughs> yes, you can leave us comments. In fact, please do leave us comments at iTunes. Uh, you can go in and uh, and leave uh, positive comments, negative comments, neutral comments, whatever you Whatever you are compelled to leave, it's uh, it's always great to go out there and read your comments, and, and we really do appreciate it. So head into iTunes, please, and uh, and leave a comment for us. We would we would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also Skype us to MacGeekGab. You can reach us on Twitter, twitter.com slash John F. Braun is him. Pete Pilot Pete is him. Dave Hamilton is me. Mac Geek Gab is the show. And, of course, Mac Observer is all the headlines from uh, from TMO. We'd like to thank Michael Johnston, who is Michael Johnston on Twitter. He's also the host of the We Have Communicators podcast and, most relevantly at this point in time, he is the one that has converted this to AAC for you. Cashfly at Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com provides all the bandwidth. The podcast marketplace includes those A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, PDF Pen from Smile, and, of course, Notebook from Circus Ponies all through Backbeat Media. And with that, this one's almost in the can, and we're getting ready for the next one. So send in your stuff. We'd love to hear from you. Ask your questions. We will do our darndest to answer them. Uh, maybe even via email to you directly, and we'll go from there. Got any big plans for the week, John? Lots of little plans. Well, while you're having your little plans, don't get caught.